Hello, and welcome to the sixth session of the Ontolog and Knowledge Management for Decision Support series. Uh, our sessions to date have been well and I appreciate all of those of you who are here today. Um, the OKMDS, <laughs> as we like to call it, is a joint um, effort from Ontolog, the Federal Knowledge Management Working Group, and NASA to try to bring some focus onto the challenges that we're all facing at our organizations are in our research in the areas of trying to bring ontologies and knowledge management to the forefront of decision-making and how they can enable and support better decisions in the government. So today's speakers are an amazing lineup, and I am honored just to be able to uh, introduce the topic. We did have a speaker a couple of sessions ago, Dr. Marcella Oliva from um, the Los Angeles City College System, who talked a little bit about the idea of, um, of knowledge mapping in a in a sort of high-level way, but the speakers today, um, which include Jeffrey, Dr. Jeffrey Conklin from Cognexus Institute, Dr. Simon Buckingham-Shum from KMI, the Open University in the UK, so welcome from across the pond, uh, Mr. Eric Yeh and Mr. Jack Park are both from SRI. Um, they're going to bring a lot of focus into the idea of knowledge mapping and, and thinking of it very much as a cartographic approach that looks at how we take information objects, whether they're documents, resources, or problems, and creates a map that helps to bring a worldview on top of that. This brings in issues of uh, tacit knowledge, explicit knowledge, folksonomies, and social networking tools, the idea of intellectual essentially creating the map of an intellectual landscape that helps to drive decision-making. Um, so, again, I'm just going to cut straight to the speakers. Our first speaker is um, Dr. Jeffrey Conklin. Uh, Hi. Hi. Dr. Conklin is the director of Cognexus Institute. Um, he is also well-known for his work in the issue-based information systems and uh, the follow-on work with QuestMap and his book, Dialogue Mapping, Creating Shared Understanding of Wicked Problems. So, Jeff, are you ready to go? Okay, take it away. Okay, very good. I'm, I'm going to jump right in. Thank you very much um, for the introduction. It's a, it is really a privilege to be here and very exciting <laughs> to have this kind, of, uh, this kind of audience and this uh, kind of international presence. So if we could advance to slide two, just a quick overview of what I want to talk about, um, as the abstract said, I want to introduce the notion of wicked problems um, for those who aren't familiar with the concept. Um, it turns out, in fact, what I'm really going to be talking about as much as wicked problems is um, some empirical work that revealed that um, problem solving is opportunity driven and uh, kind of dig into the consequences of what that means for the kinds of tools that we use when we're dealing with wicked problems. And one of the things that I've been um, fascinated with, especially recently the last few months, is um, trying to begin to think about what dialogue mapping and all of these knowledge mapping approaches are doing is helping us to get underneath the surface structure of how we normally um, talk and write about and communicate about complex issues to a deeper structure. And I'm going to, uh, by deep structure in my case, I'm pretty much going to mean an issue-based structure, but um, there's lots of room for exploration and debate about that. And I want to talk about dialogue mapping, which is a particular process of um, kind of mapping, creating a, a deep structure map on the fly. 
during a meeting or conversation. So uh, slide three, please. So this is a, a picture. Um, what you see here is a graph that illustrates how how we normally think about work, how it's planned, and how it's conceived. Uh, it's basically a linear process that can, uh, proceeds over time from starting with trying to figure out what the problem is in a, in a problem-solving setting or gather requirements in a software setting or, um, or a design setting, and a sort of a linear conception of working down from this understanding the problem effort over time to coming up with a solution. And you go through analyzing the data and formulating a solution. Um, but the end goal, of course, is to, at the end of the day, you've got the answer. You've got the solution. You've got the system or the design or the mission statement or the spreadsheet or whatever is the uh, object of the work, the knowledge work being done. So uh, next slide, please. So turns out, However, that um, as lovely as that linear conception is, <laughs> it's not how these human brains actually work. turns out um, human beings don't follow the red line process. They follow a green line process that we have um, the, the study there in the green writing in the upper right. Uh, Raymond Gandon did a, a study back in 1990. It was published in Human-Computer Interaction that showed that the process by which human cognition works when it's facing a complex and novel problem is um, anything but linear. It's actually quite uh, random or chaotic or opportunity-driven, to be a little bit more um, generous about it. But what's important to notice is that early on you're diving deep into solutions and really thinking in very detailed ways about the solution. Um, and late in the process, you're still having questions about what is the nature of the problem, what is the real issue, what is the problem. And along the way, you're sort of all over this problem-solution space. And uh, that's, uh, that's a really important insight for how we think about how we instrument um, and support knowledge work and how we um, help people deal with uh, the complexity of problems, uh, particularly wicked problems these days. Slide five, please. So the key characteristic of uh, wicked problems, as it, as it was defined by Horst Riddle um, in his writing back in the 70s, early 70s, was basically that every time you come up with a solution, or an, a proposal for a solution, or an idea about the solution, as you reflect on it, it takes you back up to reflecting on the problem domain, the problem space, and it reveals some new aspect of the problem that causes that solution to be not so good anymore. It causes you to at least have to revise it or maybe throw it out completely. So the green line is showing this really what – this is a, a picture of learning. This is a picture of um, – what it means to be a knowledge worker engaged with a problem that where there is no expert. There's no somebody who's already solved this problem and knows the right way to do it. It's a kind of a, it's a, it's a problem or a challenge that requires uh, a collective learning process. And um, so if 
the wickedness, if you will, the wicked factor on a problem is high enough. It just trumps any attempt at linear process. And, um, you know, from my perspective over the years, I would say that, that the reason so many projects fail is because they cling sort of desperately to the myth of the red line um, when the cognitive and social reality is the green line. And we're not generally having tools that support this kind of bouncy green line chaotic process of, of learning uh, and collective learning. So uh, uh, slide six, please. I'm not going to go through these, um, but these are other characteristics of problem wickedness that I wanted to have in the slides here simply because um, they point to that it's much more multidimensional a, a, a concept, problem, uh, wicked problems, than just this, the solution problem bouncing back and forth. Um, I think the other key characteristic um, that Horst Riddle pointed out is that um, there's a symmetry of ignorance on a wicked problem. There's no, there is no such thing as experts, and everyone's learning together as you go forward. So um, the whole notion of being able to sort of look up the answer or, or follow the smart leader um, is just, just doesn't apply in this kind of problem domain. Okay, slide seven, please. But what, the reason it's important, the reason the distinction wicked problems is so powerful, is so valuable, is that um, absent that, and, and Riddle distinguished between tame and wicked problems. And if you if you are treating all the problems and all the projects that you're working on as tame, um, there are there's this kind of snowball or cascading set of consequences um, the, because you're not understanding the nature of the problem there's a, there's less clarity and agreement about what the problem is and there's a there's there's a sort of a tacit understanding it's accepted that well smart people would all agree on what the problem is but uh, you have to recognize that that's just not the case if the problem is wicked um, there's a lot the, the problem-solving process, as I just was showing, is nonlinear. Um, so basically, the communication process is, is a lot more challenged. The, the process involves a lot more cycling back and forth and structuring um, or struggling, rather, over um, what seem like semantic issues, conceptual issues. It basically becomes a sense-making process, um, which often is frustrating and can lead stakeholders, particularly if the stakes are high, to um, entrench in their position. And so uh, the, the tendency is for um, kind of rational communication to be replaced by the blame game and stakeholders to become more and more entrenched as the stakes go up um, and you get a higher higher level of fragmentation, and, and which leads to even less trust, more blame, and uh, second-guessing about what, what those people really mean or what they really want or what their hidden agenda is, and more and more power and politics dominate the process. Um, all the while, the real issues were <laughs> the deeper issues, the harder issues, um, get avoided or denied in the process. So uh, slide eight, please. So in the face of all of this, as he distinguished this kind of problem, wicked problems, Horst Riddle proposed an approach called issue mapping, or actually he called it IBIS, 
issue-based information system. Um, and it's really a phenomenally simple notion that uh, a design or a problem-solving kind of conversation is powerfully analyzed in terms of three really basic elements, questions, or as you could call issues, uh, possible answers to those questions, which you could think of as options or alternatives, and pros and cons to uh, those answers. And while the stuff that um, all of us are talking about in the panel today um, goes beyond this, this is this kind of basic IBIS or issue um, notation is a fundamental part of, uh, of our thinking and our, and our systems work. So I want to go through a very quick sort of uh, scenario here um, with you. So slide nine, please. And the idea here is I want to do a – just imagine um, – I want to try to illustrate the difference between the way we normally talk about a problem and um, what you could think of as the structure, the issue structure, the IDA structure underneath that. So if the purple blob there is a comment, which is the basic unit of conversation as we uh, think of conversation as turn-taking, and as the conversation unfolds, each person – gets their turn, and they make a comment. So that row of purple dots there is the structure of a conversation. It's a sequence, a linear sequence of comments as people take turns making their, their particular comment. So let's go through a quick scenario here of a brief conversation, say the beginning of a meeting conversation. Um, slide 10, please. So above this blue-gray line, um, I've got a, a place to show the conversational structure. And the people, as they engage in the conversation, are making their comments based on their, their individual judgment of the relevance and importance of how to have what they have to say, connecting into the overall flow of the conversation. And down below is the issue-based structure. And uh, I'm imagining someone mapping this conversation on the fly. Um, and the mapper is making judgments about the implicit relationship. So if we go to slide 11, um, this should unfold pretty quickly now as um, the first person makes a comment and the mapper puts it as uh, an idea. So the light bulb represents an idea. And I'm using the icons and really this is taken from a, a tool, a free shareware tool called Compendium that you'll be hearing more about today. Um, so you get this comment in the map and now slide 12, please. Um, the first thing that happens in an issue-based uh, structure is people make, typically make comments without being explicit about what the question is they were addressing. So either on his own or uh, with the speaker, the mapper has to figure out what is that question. And so we put the root question that the comment one was addressing into the map. And now, uh, slide 13, please, the next comment comes along. And that's someone agreeing and actually giving a supporting comment that, that supports why comment one is a good answer to the question. Uh, slide 14 shows someone else coming in. Comment three turns out is another possible answer to that uh, root question. And the next person who speaks up, comment four on slide 15, is uh, coming on, going back to comment one and, and raising a question about that. So on slide 16, Comment five is someone volunteering an answer to that question, the comment four question. 
and slide 17, someone has made a comment here, and it doesn't relate to anything directly that anyone has said so far. It's actually a whole it's a turn in the conversation, and this, of course, happens all the time. Um, so the mapper has captured it as a new light bulb, a new comment, but they, it's not related to anything that was going on uh, before. And uh, slide 18, again, the, the next thing is to figure out what the root question is and get that into the map. And uh, in dialogue mapping, I would make a guess about that, but I'd validate it with the person who made comment 6. Um, so that we were all clear about that the map was was an accurate reflection of the thinking. And then on slide 19, someone makes a comment, and they're actually objecting to that idea in comment 6. And uh, slide 20 is the next speaker making comment 8. That's another possible answer, an alternative to comment 6, comment 8 on that question. And finally... On slide 21, comment 9 comes along. And comment 9 is someone who's been sitting there kind of holding their tongue, and now they really want to talk about comment 3. So they go and they throw out a, a pro, a plus, for comment 3, a reason why we should pick comment 3. So this is the um, the, the point here is to, to try to see the contrast between these two conversational, these two structures. And if we go to slide 21, um, Typically what happens at the end of a meeting is someone has made some notes and they'll, some of these comments or some summary of them will be summarized in the meeting notes. Um, in dialogue mapping, at the end of the meeting, you've got the map and the mapper um, prints it out or hands it out to uh, the participants in the meeting. And, um, you know, which structure is more coherent, which is more meaningful, which which supports better exploration of complex topics. And my observation as a, as a professional practitioner of dialogue mapping is that groups typically will have the, without being able to see the structure, the issue structure, will cycle potentially endlessly over and over again, meeting after meeting on the same sets of issues without being able to see the territory that they're covering, covering without being able to kind of be explicit about what they're learning together and what they're thinking together. Um, so there are some challenges, obviously, with how you create that issue map. It's a lot of work for a mapper. Um, it's a skilled practice. It's a craft skill. Um, but we're, I don't know how much we'll talk about that part today. If you want to see, um, there's a little link there to uh, a, a video version of this part. So if we go on to slide 23 now, um, try to summarize this. The linear structure that we were seeing up above, in contrast with the issue-based structure, is the, the linear structure is that normal kind of surface structure that you hear in conversations, that you see in meeting notes, that you often see in documents of any kind. It's um, organized that way because it's, it's traditional and familiar. Uh, the issue-based structure, as you probably notice, particularly if you're new to it, is kind of specialized. It's dense. It's not natural, necessarily, in a way. Um, the power of the linear structure is that it's very chronological. It follows a sequence, uh, an unfolding. And the whole power of the issue-based structure is that it actually factors sequence. It factors chronology out. It says, no, let's organize by questions instead of by time. 
and we get a much denser, much um, more uh, coherent kind of representation of things, particularly as the conversation grows and scales over hours or days or months. So uh, slide 24, please. Um, I want to take one more run at this and illustrate this business of um, uh, kind of point to bouncing around, what I'm going to call bouncing around. It's not a, it's a, okay, it is. It's a technical term. <laughs> and the technical term of bouncing around is that when you're faced, that's what that green line showed. The green line of nonlinear processes is a, is a bouncing around um, within problem space and between problem and solution space. So if you can read, I hope you can read, that the compendium screen now at the beginning of this hypothetical meeting starts with two questions in it. One is, what is the problem? It's a question about the problem space. And the other is, what should we do about the problem? What should we do about it? And that is obviously the solution space problem. So slide 25, someone opens the conversation and they say, well, the problem is that process X doesn't work well. So the mapper has placed that um, in the map. X doesn't work well. That's the answer that is as it's being mapped. Um, the next person, page uh, slide 26, next person says, well, I'm not so sure. I think the real problem is that Y doesn't work very well. So the mapper has put Y doesn't work well as another idea against the question, what's the problem? All right, slide 27, somebody says, yeah, and there have been big improvements in X lately, process X. So this is you have to pay attention to the logic here because what they're saying is that there have been big improvements in X is a reason that it's not the case that X doesn't work well. In other words, X it's, it's weakening the claim that X doesn't work well is the problem. On slide 28, this person continues and they say, I think we should just implement plan A like we discussed months ago. So this speaker, in one utterance, in one comment, in, if you will, in the conversation, has made a move on, in problem space and jumped into solution space. And the next speaker says, well, plan A won't work because it doesn't address process Z. And the truth is process Z doesn't work at all. So this is a new stakeholder, a new point of view, and it comes into the map in two ways. First of all, it's an objection to implementing plan A because the, the red minus says it doesn't address Z. And it's built going back to the what is the problem question and adding Z doesn't work at all. So on slide 30, the conversation continues and someone else is saying, well, I agree. We need to start over with a new plan B and start getting upper management input. Okay, now this person has continued on the solution side. What should we do about it? But they're saying they're offering a new alternative. They're saying, I agree, plan A doesn't work. We need to create a new plan B and start getting upper management input. And on slide 31, the next person says, well, wait a minute. What's the problem with Z? I thought we had that fixed. So you feel the sense-making going on. This is, this is not just what are we trying to do here, but what are we talking about and what's our process and what's true? What are the facts? And uh, so as that person speaks, we've mapped that as a question, what's wrong? He doesn't work at all. Why not? And on slide 32, someone responds. Z costs too much. 
and the costs are increasing, and in any case, it doesn't meet the new interoperability standards. Whatever. They're, they're giving ideas, reasons, um, to why Z doesn't work at all. And uh, so that's, that's another quick scenario. If we go on to slide 33, um, I'm trying here, I'm taking a leap, but what, so this is to go back and try to illustrate this jumping around phenomenon um, back in the graph. So here we are on our graph. The green line is jumping up and down all over the place between the problem and solution. And as we go, we're asking, the group is uh, asking questions or at least talking about offering answers to questions, implicit questions, such as what is the problem? And down second from the bottom, what should we do? But there's a other in dialogue mapping, and, and uh, Riddle talked about a variety of question types. So there's a sort of a taxonomy of, a, of six or seven main question types that come up over and over again in dialogue mapping. And what are the criteria, for example? What does this is a, that's a criterial question. What does uh, blah bitty blah mean? What does X mean? Uh, is it conceptual or meaning question? What are the facts? Is it, question about facts, and at, all the way at the bottom, how should we do X, is a detailed implementation called an instrumental question. So as the map unfolds, if you are mapping this green line conversation, you have all of these questions, and as the conversation unfolded, people would be, your, your light bulbs would be going against all of these different questions over time during the conversation. So we're in the final stretch here on slide 34. Um, what I'm suggesting here, and I'm, I'm keen to see if um, there's any comment from um, from the, the group or from the other panelists, um, because it seems to me that what we have to do uh, is bridge this gap between being at the comfortable, familiar surface structure of linear conversation and linear writing and the powerful, revealing, deep structure, question-based structure of uh, that is nonlinear and that matches the nonlinear process and makes it coherent. So this little graphic is on the left side is an article about global warming. And on the right side is a map, an issue map and compendium of that article. And the proposed interface here is that as you move the mouse around, sections of text that are making a point are connected to the node in the map that where that comment was being captured um, as, a, as a possible sort of interface way of bridging this gap between surface and deep structure. Okay, slide 35, this is my um, final slide, and uh, really just a shameless self-promotion, my website and my book. So, Peter, that's it. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a wonderful presentation. All right, uh, moving along, uh, let's call upon uh, Dr. Simon Buckingham Shum. Uh, and Simon is a senior lecturer at the uh, Open University uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, is Knowledge Management Institute, uh, 
most familiar to us uh, as KMI. And uh, he has degrees in psychology, economics, and human-computer interaction, uh, and has worked on visual hypertext for mapping meetings and documentation since the year 1990. Uh, he leads the Hypermedia Discourse Project, co-edited uh, visualization argumentation in 2003, and brought together leading figures in argument mapping and knowledge cartography uh, this year, uh, which expanded that. Uh, he has received UK and US funding for e-science and e-learning projects, and he is a co-founder of the Compendium Institute, which puts out the tool that uh, Dr. Conklin was mentioning and he leads the development of that uh, compendium tool. Uh, he also co-chaired the second international conference on the pragmatic web, and his most recent knowledge mapping tool is called Cohere, uh, which moves towards a web 2.0 connection. And uh, Simon, are you ready? Uh, yep, can you hear me okay? We're ready to go. Go ahead, all yours, Simon. <clears throat> okay, thanks very much. Peter, um, oh, it's great to be here. Um, a really exciting group to be to be presenting to, and I hope that this will stimulate some thoughts. So um, this is really picking up where Jeff left off, and I'm going to introduce very briefly the the notion of hypermedia discourse and um, describe how we've taken forward the, the sort of foundational work that Jeff did in in finding ways to map the deep structure, as he calls it, of conversation, and add uh, layers on top of that for modeling and for uh, uh, doing um, asynchronous work as well, uh, moving towards a sort of Web 2 direction where we can overlay conceptual structures with social structures. That's where I'm aiming to get to in the next 20 minutes. I'll be going fairly quickly, um, but there are lots of pointers to follow up on the different examples I'm going to show you. So if we go to slide two, I'm going to introduce the idea of hypermedia discourse as a sort of a general conception of what happens when you collide hypertext with the world of discourse, which of course is what Jeff was just showing you, one example of. If we go to slide three, why hypermedia? Why are we interested in hypermedia particularly? Well, because it has a number of important properties. We're interested in the relationships between ideas, whether it's expressed in a meeting, as Jeff just walked through, or in an article, as he hinted at at the end there. Um, so it's all about relationships and connections, and that's what hypertext allows us to, to, to model. Um, we're interested in different perspectives. Um, so as the abstract for this whole uh, panel today explained, we may not have a consensus worldview. We may be talking about contested knowledge, un, uh, poorly understood domains, and um, there may be different perspectives. And hypertext gives you a way of navigating through the space in many ways. Uh, we're interested in the incremental formalization of ideas. In other words, we do not generally um, create rigorous clean, computable representations straight out of our minds, um, they, they emerge through an iterative process of refinement and formalization. 
and uh, and hypertext as a research field has looked quite hard at this whole problem of incremental formalization, um, providing ways to add structure, add rigor, add metadata gradually. We're interested in rendering structural visualizations. That means uh, seeing the big picture in a way uh, that Jeff was just illustrating quite nicely, um, and hypertext has a ways of representing structure. Um, visually, there's a strong tradition of doing that. And finally, we're talking about heterogeneous content, not just text or formal ontological entities, but the whole range of multimedia material um, and everything ranging from, I've got a vague idea that there's some connection between these two things, all the way through to something that might be formally modeled in an ontology. Okay, let's turn on slide four, uh, slide four now to the, the idea of discourse. Well, the key thing here is that we make sense of the world by talking, talking, dialoguing with ourselves and with each other. Um, no matter how great the tools are, people are always going to need to talk to build the common ground, to negotiate the meaning of a particular representation. Even when we have inference going on in our systems, they often need interpretation and debate as to how to act on them. So we're interested in all these kinds of discourse that are listed here. Uh, from informal and formal kinds of verbal and written communication in the workplace to the asynchronous discussion of communities of practice, online uh, dialogue to build common ground, more rigorous argumentation, the, the, the making of claims uh, in analytical narratives. An analytical narrative might be uh, a competitor analysis, an intelligence analysis, um, a literature review, and, of course, meetings as well. Meetings, meetings, meetings. We complain all the time about the quality of them. Um, the idea, again, building on what Jeff was talking about, is that maybe we can improve the quality of our meetings, whether online or face-to-face. -face. Okay, slide five. Um, as we've uh, written about in more detail, we're suggesting that hypermedia discourse tools have a particular mix. Um, they have a discourse ontology, that is, some kind of scheme for making moves in a conversation. Jeff just showed you IBIS. Uh, a notation, which is one or more symbol systems for making that scheme tangible. An intuitive user interface. Uh, in other words, whilst everybody would agree we all want intuitive interfaces, we are talking about tools not necessarily for ontology engineers or information scientists, but for domain experts who could probably, who can still understand for example, you know, question marks, light bulbs, and plus and minus icons. Um, computational services refers not just to um, uh, the, the possibility of reasoning over the structure, but the, the whole socio-technical mix. In, the, in, in other words, the quality of the visualization um, as well. Uh, the, extent, the extent to which the process of making ideas explicit actually helps clarify your own thinking. Um, so it's the whole added value of doing this in software as opposed to just doing it on, on a whiteboard. And finally, I want to emphasize the whole literacy fluency aspect, which tends to get underrepresented in many knowledge management tools. Often these are powerful tools that can't just be thrown over the wall and expect people to use them well. Um, just as we don't expect anybody to sit down in front of Photoshop and, and produce great digital art or sit down in front of a piano, and produce a virtuoso performance. If we're talking about next generation tools, there will be a whole new literacy associated with using them well, and part of our research has been looking at what does it mean to get really good at doing this, as well as the initial learning curve. 
Okay, slide six. I'll move quite quickly through these. Um, compendium, slide seven. Um, the compendium is the hypertext system that uh, you've just been looking at in Jeff's slides. There's a picture of the IBIS scheme, which you can look at in more detail later. It shows the kinds of moves you can make around the different contributions. Uh, slide eight um, shows you a little bit more up close um, what it looks like if we start not only having questions, ideas, and pros and cons, but dragging and dropping in other media and documents, for example, a PDF file, uh, which provides backing evidence for that red con node, or um, a, uh, a movie, or a PowerPoint show, or an image. You see, we've dragged and dropped those in off the desktop, and uh, that's how Compendium renders them. So in other words, documents start to play roles in conversations. Documents mean nothing in and of themselves. They, they, they play a role in, in supporting a particular view in a conversation. If we go to the next slide, nine. Uh, just to show you that uh, there's a sort of folksonomic tagging scheme in Compendium as well, so you can start to show connections between nodes even if they're not in the same view. So whilst we can draw arrows that connect ideas in a given context, we can also tag them and invent new tags on the fly uh, and then filter all the, the nodes based on tag combinations. Slide, uh, slide 10. Okay. Uh, and just shows a few more of the different kinds of media files we can bring in. Slide 11, please. Okay, now what happens if, rather than just capturing a free-form discussion, we want to use Compendium as a collaborative knowledge elicitation tool? Um, so we have the idea of a template. Next slide, please, 12, which is um, a predefined set of questions. You could think of this as the agenda for a meeting. Um, these sets of questions actually come from um, a task modeling template from work that Al Selvin did at, in uh, 9x, as it was, Verizon now, uh, derived from the common CADS methodology. So in other words, you can use this tool to scaffold any methodology or modeling process that you are already engaged with because that methodology simply directs you to ask certain kinds of questions at certain points in the process. And then, as far as Compendium and IBIS are concerned, those are just predefined questions you want to ask. If we go to slide 13, that shows an example of uh, a different template being instantiated. You can see we've sort of filled in the form, but it's a visual form with light bulbs responding to the question. If we go to the next slide, 14, you can see that because this is a constrained, well-structured map, as opposed to something that people just generated from a free-form discussion, we can then transform that into different representations for different communities of practice. For example, a Visio flow diagram um, or um, a word template and the people who receive these documents may not care at all that it came out of compendium they're just waiting for the the right document in the right form to land in their email box um, but the point is it was derived and generated from an underlying knowledge structure um, as you can see in the top left corner there uh, which itself might have been constructed in a meeting with domain experts who don't need to get to groups with any arcane notations. We're just dealing with question marks and light bulbs. Okay, if we go to the next slide, 15, um, that's just a summary of the different ways in which structure is managed in Compendium. And I won't go through those all in detail. Just to emphasize the lower points there, um, we're, uh, Compendium is designed to be interoperable with a wide variety of tools. We're trying to make it standards compliant. 
And as you'll see shortly in our NASA work, we've been interfacing other systems into uh, the compendium system. Okay, slide uh, 16, please. Um, let's just talk about a couple of examples to ground this. Um, here's an example of doing hostage recovery planning with a DARPA-funded project. This is work with Austin Tate at Edinburgh. Seven, slide 17. Here we're stepping through a methodology for the process that a, a personnel recovery team would go through when they were planning a hostage recovery operation. Um, you can see the steps of the methodology are on a custom palette down the side there. That's just a graphic device. Uh, you click on one of the steps in the method, like intent, and up comes the template for asking the, the particular questions that this methodology shows. So here we're having a very structured discussion driven by the template. Slide 18, please. That now shows us in a completely different mode. In fact, this is a dialogue mapping mode, just as Jeff showed you. And here, it may not be too clear uh, on the slide, um, but um, this is a, a discussion about should we apply diplomatic pressure to a, a fictional member of the cabinet of the country that's holding the hostages. And we have different, anal you know, different analysts in the room and online uh, who are participating in this conversation. This display is up on the main displays in the planning room. And here we have a view of the collective intelligence, the collective wisdom on this particular issue at this point. Um, from military analysts, political analysts, logistics, special forces, etc. So this is a way of capturing the, the collective wisdom on this issue at this moment. In the background, you can see we've put a graphic, which completely changes the structure of the display into more of a matrix outline, with a dock at the top and various activities going on in the background, which um, I won't go into detail now about, but there, are, there is a document which talks about this. It's just to show you how you can really change the visual knowledge environment if you want to. Okay, here we, uh, again, detail is not important, but the point is that Compendium was also interfaced with an AI planning engine which knew about a certain aspect, well-structured aspects of this problem space, and it could actually pop up questions and suggest possible solutions to questions based on its, its understanding of the problem space. So, for example, um, there is a, the, the bubble there is pointing to responses to certain issues which the planning engine raised and the under-candidate options that it suggested in response to those. Okay, slide 20. Completely different example now, and this is moving a little bit towards what Jeff was talking about, um, about how would we analyze a corpus of documents, this time not about global warming, but about the legitimacy of the Iraq invasion. Here we have, again, there's a URL there. You can go and check it out later. Here we have um, all the... Um, uh, the, the stakeholders in the debate that we were analyzing with links to their articles on the web. If we click on one of their faces, for example, Chomsky, next slide, shows us converting his article into, um, basically into a, a form of issue map, um, which lifts out by just by dragging and dropping the text from his article into compendium and giving it a type that he's raising a question to which he's responding with pro or anti-war arguments in red and green. And you do this for uh, 30 articles, and you start tagging them with different codes to capture the themes that are emerging. And then the maps down on the left towards the bottom of the uh, navigation bar there sh uh, show you synthesis maps that start to capture you know, all the responses to a particular thematic question, such as what did all the pro-war analysts have to say about the ethics of the ethical principles that 
justified preemptive strike, for example? Or what is the role of the United Nations, according to anti-war analysts? Okay, you can check that out later. Uh, that's a web export of Compendium, so you don't need Compendium to view that. Okay, next slide, please. Looking at slide 22. Um, this is actually now work with uh, people at NASA Ames in the Human-Centered Computing Group, Bill Clancy and Martin Searhouse. Um, and uh, slide 23 just introduces the work that we were doing with them. The challenge is how will teams work effectively together across Mars and Earth, space and time um, for an extended month, you know, several months long uh, exploration missions. We're talking about 20 to 30 years in the future when we might put humans on Mars. Next slide, please. Uh, here it shows the setup. They actually go out to the Utah desert and live in a habitat for two weeks at a time doing different kinds of science experiments. And you can see here in the Mobile Agents Project, they're out there, geologists uh, testing voice, to, uh, voice recognition software. They've got a robot trundling along behind them, taking photos and obeying instructions. Uh, next slide, they're taking photographs of geology samples, recording voice notes, and it's all streaming back over a large agent network, uh, back into Compendium and other science tools that, that NASA Ames have been developing. The only point to gather from this complex slide is that there are lots of agents. You can see uh, the little stars with CA um, uh, agents, and there are agents mediating between Compendium and the rest of the network. Next slide, please. This slide shows how Compendium became a semi-formal visual interface, not only for humans to communicate with each other on Earth and Mars, simulated Mars in, in Utah, but also for the scientists to communicate directly at the intersection of those two, the pink and grey diagrams there, and also for the scientists on Mars to communicate with the agent architecture that they were running in the habitat on Mars. Next slide. Uh, so this slide shows uh, a very, again, a structured template map which is asking for answers to certain kinds of questions and this is planning the exploration for a particular, uh, uh, for the next day's geology exploration. Where are we going to go? How long are we going to spend there? Who's going to do it? Um, <clears throat> how long will they take at each location? Next slide. That map is then interpreted by the agent architecture and um, translated into um, instructions for planning the, um, the exercise in other environments, in other software environments. Then out go the astronauts. They take their photos. and In comes the streaming metadata. There's a photograph taken by one of the robots with the metadata, you know, uh, GPS coordinates, timestamp, etc., etc. Again, so here's a map written by a software agent straight into Compendium. Next slide then shows how the humans start to make sense of this metadata by collaging the photos. Um, and the next slide shows them actually having a discussion about the meaning or significance of a particular piece of data. So the point here is that we have agents reading and writing maps. We have humans then in the same environment uh, engaging in only the what only humans can do, which is actually interpret the relevance of this data for the particular questions that they're asking. So hopefully you can translate this particular example into the world uh, that, that you're inhabiting, where we might be talking about other kinds of data, 
but it's still a semi-formal sense-making environment with different tools reading and writing data into this sense-making space. Okay, slide 31. This shows how we then extend the very terse skeletal representation that you get in these knowledge maps and integrate that with the richness and the, the nuance that, of course, you get in a real meeting, which can be captured on video. And so if you do the mapping in real time during the meeting, as the astronaut team is doing here in the habitat, then you can index the meeting video with the contributions to the, to the knowledge map. So now we can jump to the point in the meeting when, for example, a particular argument was raised, a particular question was asked, a particular decision was made by clicking on the node in the map and jumping to that point in the meeting. So now we're navigating not just by temporal, uh, not just by uh, you know, viewing slides uh, or opening documents, which is what some video indexing systems already do, but by, by, by the semantics of the moves and contributions being made in the discussion. So this was a proof of concept that we created for the eScience project we were running. The next slide shows how we then embedded this infrastructure in the mainstream access grid video conferencing environment. This is a high-end internet video conferencing environment. Each of those video images could be a wall-sized display. Um, the next slide shows, it just jumps to the right of this widescreen display and shows the map being created and underneath the uh, the timeline showing who spoke when, and you can just about make out the agenda items and the compendium items in the top two rows of those event timelines. So in other words, you can jump to the point when a particular agenda item started. That, was, that corresponded to a particular map in compendium being opened. Um, and you can jump to the point when a particular node was selected, created, highlighted, using the timeline uh, shown underneath there. Okay, next slide. Again, if you Google memetic meeting replay, you'll find the slides. Um, I want to then step uh, sideways and just give you a different example of the kinds of hypermedia discourse that uh, we've been looking at. And this is really looking at uh, how we index documents in an organization. Uh, we've been looking particularly at literatures in research, but this could be any, any organization or any kind of literature. So um, the point is that really the way, we, the way we disseminate knowledge these days hasn't really moved on a whole lot since 1665 when the first journals came out using this new technology called newspapers to support the invisible social networks that existed of researchers. And uh, jumping quickly two slides forward, really we haven't moved on very far because now we have digital paper, of course, and that's about it. Um, our digital libraries have no idea what's going on in the documents, in the discourse, in the moves that are being made. Why is one document citing another? Um, next slide, please. So the work we've been doing is, is to move from a big, a big lump of text, citing another big lump of text, which is shown at the bottom there, and annotating those documents with meaningful, meaningful concepts or ideas, and then making connections between those ideas. For example, this document contributes a particular method which applies a theory published in a previous article. And that's, that's a kind of meaningful contribution that one wants to try and track, whether you're a research scientist or a knowledge manager in a company. Okay, next slide, please, 38. And we've been working on different kinds of languages. So this is a different kind of discourse ontology from IBIS. 
a bit richer, but the idea is that because it's asynchronous, you might put more effort into thinking about the kind of connection you would want to make between ideas. Again, we've written extensively about why this particular language. Slide 39, please. Uh, this shows us how we then put a, a skin on top of compendium in order to help us start modeling the claims, the contributions being made by documents in our literature. And the next slide, slide 40, um, shows us uh, in a different kind of environment, but getting a, pushing on, on, on the challenge that Jeff laid down. Um, how could we annotate a text directly um, and, um, and make connections to the deep structure that we wanted to lift out. And you can see here Claim Spotter. If you Google Claim Spotter, you'll find the work on this, um, where we're annotating text directly. It's also doing a bit of text processing to show the most important concepts. Um, you can reuse other people's annotations. Um, and you can, you can create tri meaningful triples on the right-hand side using a form. For example, you can see on the bottom of the form there, some evidence is evidence against um, another claim that's being made. Okay, next slide, please. Um, of course, if you have a group of analysts working on this, then you want to see what is the emergent structure that's coming out. And so we, we've done work on generating those structures. For example, here we are browsing the work of uh, uh, the, in, in the AI literature on um, the Turing debate. This is uh, visualizing different camps within the debate about whether machines will ever be able to think. Uh, slide 42, please. And that then gives us the ability to start creating search engines that will allow us to filter these. So we don't want to just browse huge graphs all the time. We want to be able to filter these in different ways. So we might imagine a sort of semantic Google Scholar, um, which allows me to ask questions like, show me the documents that challenge this one. This is not a question that we can ask any kind of digital library or search engine at the moment but it's one of those basic questions that we try and teach any analyst or PhD student to, to ask. But our machines have no notion. Um, or um, lineage, you know, show me the ideas on which this one is building. On whose shoulders is this person standing? And the next slide, 43, shows, for example, a visualization that shows the roots underlying the top level idea. So that says that that top level idea uses, applies, or is enabled by another one which in turn used another one. Um, and you can see, you can follow the semantic relationships between those ideas. Okay, slide 44, please. Finally, just to wrap up, we've, we're taking the work that we did in that project um, forwards, and we have a tool called Cohere, which you can see there listed at coherweb.net, which is really to move uh, towards um, a Web2 mode of activity. So I'm not going to do a demo, sorry, that's left over from a previous talk, but slide 45 onwards shows a number of different slides. So let's imagine now that uh, we want to capture an important idea that's been published. So Google have just announced their Wikipedia killer, the null. Um, this seems like an important idea, so we want to capture it. So we create an idea called a null. You can see that in the top left corner there. And it's linked to the Google blog there, you can see underneath it, called Encouraging People to Contribute. Um, that idea itself, uh, you can grab the, the, the snippet text for it and embed that in the next slide, 46, in some other website. So, for example, in our, in our blog, we gave this example. Google had just announced the null, and here, there, sitting in that blog is the link to that idea. 
the next slide shows how you might embed not just a single idea but an actual knowledge structure um, inside another website. So here we have the idea of the null with two critical questions addressing that concept. Slide 48, please, um, shows how we, we then want to move from talking about tag clouds, which are now quite familiar, to saying, well, there may be some meaningful relationships between these tags, and we can just click on them and then assert a relationship between them, as you can see on the menu on the left there, that communication uses or applies interpersonal skills. Slide 49, on the home straight now, um, just showing a few more examples of richer structures here. Here we are, we have a key, a focal node in the middle called key skills, and this view shows all the incoming and outgoing links from that node. Uh, next slide 50 um, shows that um, uh, we, we offer some predefined connection types that we might ask people to, make, to consider making, but you don't have to be bound by those. You are able to create your own connection types, and the menu on the right there is an illustration of that, so you can see the predefined challenges links, um, but you can invent your own. You can see down at the bottom it says add new negative connections, so you can invent your own natural language connections between two ideas if you want to. But it's a, it's a negative kind of connection, and the system knows that. Okay, slide 51. <coughs> a different example here, um, where we, we, we really drill down into um, uh, an argument from expert opinion. So in an IBIS structure like Jeff showed, you might challenge an idea by saying, Professor, Professor Bloggs doesn't think we should do that. But we could unpack that and say, well, that's an argument from expert opinion, and we can undermine that, or at least challenge that, by asking a whole bunch of questions which we take from argumentation theory that ask, well, is blogs really an expert? What do other experts say? And so forth. So here's how we can drill down into argument structure in more detail. Okay, slide 52. Um, again, an, an example of a visualization generated out of the connections and a way of filtering that by just saying, show me all the contrasting connections that point to that focal node. Slide 53, um, a kind of mashup, where if more than one person is talking about, for example, the focal node there, large-scale problems in the 21st century, you can see who's talking about it. So it's merged those two ideas, and you can pivot around it just like you would around a tag. Slide 54, well, we'll just skip through that quickly. And um, slide 55, um, just to say we've been thinking about how we, you know, there are some tensions between social software and the Web2 world, which has very low entry overheads, and the work of argumentation and sense-making, which requires more intellectual effort. So trying to merge these creates some tensions as well. Um, you can't do intellectual work without thinking. And social software these days tends not to require an awful lot of thought, so we're trying to figure out how we negotiate that tension. Um, and slide 56 is just to acknowledge that, of course, this isn't work of my own so solely, but uh, with a lot of other people and with uh, generous funding from various sources. And uh, you can find out, final, finally, um, slide 57, more about this work on the Hypermedia Discourse website. So thanks very much. I've been very quick, but that gives you a flavor of the work we're doing here in KMI. Thank you very much, Simon. That's a really comprehensive uh, presentation.
And so flowing from Jeff starting out with uh, telling us about this nonlinear process to Simon uh, showing us some tools and cases of hypermedia discourse, uh, let's come back to this side of the uh, the ocean and have two colleagues uh, from SRI uh, telling us some of the work they do here. Um, uh, next, uh, our next panelist is Eric Ye, uh, who will be talking uh, about the Structured Evidential Argumentation System. S-E-A-S, uh, which is a collaborative tool that facilitates analysis of a problem by a group of analysts. And Eric is a software engineer uh, with the representation and reasoning program at the Artificial Intelligence Center at SRI International. So uh, let's try to bring up his slides uh, in the meantime. And Eric, uh, are you almost ready? Um, yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? All right. Yes, I can hear you well. Let me bring up your slides. And okay, I hope uh, the rest of our participants have your slides too. And I have that on the shared screen and hope everyone has that on your desktops as well. Okay, go ahead, uh, Eric. Great. Great. Uh, thank you for having me. It's definitely an honor and privilege to be participating in this. So let's go on to uh, slide number two, please. So so the Structured Evidential Argumentation System, or SEEVE, as we like to call it, is a software tool that we've developed for collaborative analysis of problems. Now, this is a template-based structured argumentation tool. So in a sense, it's a little bit like sort of the second half of the tools that, are used, that we that discussed previously for mapping out of space. Now, I'll address some issues with that later on in the discussion here. So it's designed for collaboration and also for analyses across, of historical situations and analogies across different times. It's been deployed at several sites um, in government, commercially, and being good purveyors of dog food, we use it internally at SRI as well. So go to slide three, please. So one question is sort of why structured argumentation? Well, so in the, from what we've seen, a lot of analytic products are essentially basically documents or piles of natural language text. Now, that's great for expressing a, a variety of concepts. However, you have to read through them in order to find or and new knowledge and also understand what's really going on, which is an extremely time-crude time-consuming uh, task, especially if you have a pile that you need to go through every day. So what we've done with Sieve is to add a very simple structure. So that's that little tree structure, which I'll explain in a moment, which allows users to still retain some of the, still, re still, still retain some of the uh, expressiveness of their regular analytical work. However, by adding this structure, it makes it easier to, A, be able to understand and visualize the driving forces behind uh, behind an analysis. Or, and also, because it's templated, it will also, and there's some structure to that, allow you to search for analogous ones and also for, and also for other arguments that are pertinent to your current analysis. And the other, the other intent also is that these structures can, these templates can be reused. So 
So instead of having to rely on rely on the I'm grabbing the analyst who is an expert in a certain subject and bringing them back in to address a certain problem. You can instead leverage the templates they've created and basically reuse the knowledge that's encapsulated there to address the problem. So a lot of this work was motivated originally by another project at SRI that was called Gister, which was essentially a belief net in the past. So what what happened with that was was it didn't work out all that great, mostly because it sort of fell into all the issues that belief nets encounter when they've been used for this sort of general analytic problem. With A, the analysts, they get they don't like being data entry personnel, entering a number between zero and one. And the other thing was was the the hypotheses that came out of these belief nets were very difficult to follow. For instance, like 0.42, what exactly does that mean? And also, it's very hard to sort of follow the lines of reasoning from a belief net. And also, a lot of times, the belief nets, they're very, very difficult to make way in an update. So they weren't really all that popular. Now, granted, they're probably, they are, they are useful tools for addressing certain problems. However, in the general case, we found they have been inadequate. So uh, please go to slide four. So essentially, at its very basic, C's answers have templates that address problems by basically formulating the main question and answering that question with a series of questions. So similar to those uh, Simon's question templates that we had seen previously. So the questions are arranged in a tree format, where the higher level questions are essentially more abstract, they're more general question, and as you as you go down the tree. Basically, as you become windowed down to the problem, they become the questions become more specific until you eventually hit the leaf level, where hopefully they would correspond to observables or very primitive sort of primitive things you can see and and uh, hopefully uh, objectively enter in. So questions are generally framed on the on the, on the scale, either from yes to no or on let's say a numeric range. So what a user usually would do would be to add, Attach um, an answer at a, at a leaf node, and also add in supporting information such as the textual rationale, which they have entered in to explain why they answered something the way they did, and supporting evidence, which are essentially sort of files, whether they be Word documents, PowerPoint slides, etc., or links to other other resources on the web or the internet. So, advance to slide five, please. So here we have an example of, of a template that addresses whether or not a given nation state is experiencing an economic crisis or not. As you can see here on the top level nodes here, we sort of have the general question, number one, um, that we wish to have answered is, or is this country headed for an economic crisis? And as you can follow down from the tree structure over here, the, this question can be answered by, let's say, well, the subject matter expert that it'll be and can be answered by a fact breaking into three different questions or factors that you want to address. So, for example, over here, the 1.3, the rightmost one, exp expresses sort of what, well, what's the financial stability, and then to address that, you have three more specific questions that an analyst can enter in. So, questions about the banking sector, the currency, the state of the stock market. And to the left of those, you'll see a series of colored lights. They correspond to traffic lights ranging from red, yellow to green. 
these essentially these are the answers that the analyst can fill in, and they're once again that will be visualized. They will be visualized on the tree over here. So advance to slide six, please. So here we have an example of well, we call it an, we we call it a filled-in template an argument. Essentially, that's once that some once an analyst has filled in an answer and attached sort attach relevance to each of the questions and also enter in their explanations. So just a bit of a terminological issue there. Essentially, what we have here is an example of what, of what, a, what an analyst would see when they're at one of the answer nodes over here. So here, the analyst assessed, basically, assessed that, yeah, the banks are in trouble over here, giving it a red light. So this red light here has a certain connotation for the analyst. Uh, entering in along with the textual rationale. And included over here would be the, uh, essentially, evidence. So these are either other documents or they could al also be other arguments inside the C knowledge base here that the analyst has deemed to be appropriate for and relevant for answering this question. So as you can sort of see up here in the tree structure, if the uh, the line of reasoning for arriving at a, at a given for at a given answer can be quickly visualized from here. So, uh, if you recall from the previous slide, the top level question was asking whether this nation or state was experiencing a financial crisis. So, the, according to this, this would be yes, and then you can follow follow the path down to the explanation to the base level questions of why this why 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 you believe this so. So, next slide, please. Slide seven. So we so by combining these arguments together and also using so, uh, varying other art combinations to slowly even see, you can cascade them together, joining in arguments together, as well as tool as well as output from other analytical tools such as critical path leak uh, analysis tools and and so on to form very very complex lines of reasoning that that you can sort of follow up you where you can follow the line of reasoning very quickly, given the, given the graphical nature of these things. And next slide, please. Slide 8. So following that, we also offer multiple ways of visualizing given arguments and templates. So you can visualize them as a spider diagram for independent factors analysis. You can use another. We have, uh, we have multiple ways of graphically visualizing them. You can even... Uh, Getting a, a textual output that's suitable for export to Microsoft Word, which apparently people in government like because they love Microsoft. And there's, and these visualizations, you can also control the level of detail of, of the output you want to see, whether you just want a sort of a quick and dirty story of the driving factors or if the person who's consuming the end product has more time you can increase the level of detail so they can actually see the more, get a better idea of the explanations and rationale for the conclusion that was arrived at. Next slide, please. Slide nine. So, also to outline a few more facilities that we offer to users. One is sort of the ability to attach memos. These are, think of them as little yellow sticky notes, except they resemble more of a threaded message board system. Users can attach essentially memos onto basically any of the structures that are inside C, whether it be individual nodes in an argument, or to a group of or to a group of arguments or templates. These allow commentary and discussion about different different facets of an analysis, or 
um, just ran just any kind of discussion and collaboration or to notify users as well. We also attached to these templates and also arguments the idea of a discovery tool. These essentially act as stored queries. So what users who are constructing templates, they often do is they often have an idea of the best, the best resource to query, whether it be a search engine with a specific set of query terms or RSS feed that, that receives input that basically they believe being useful for answering specific questions, or it could just be a simple set of textual document or something that's saying, Hey, these are the uh, these are the ideas that we these are the things that you should be following up on to get it, to help you answer this question. So essentially, these are sort of guides or ways of helping a user find out more, uh, find out the answers to that question that they're looking at. So next slide, please, slide ten. So the intent with the intent with the with that we had originally with C's was to have users form a cycle where they search for relevant products from the uh, from the knowledge base, and then, and just as a side note, we do offer on, on different ontologies for essentially annotating the structures and C's, and I even can use an ontology for to help uh, motivate a search. So the intent here would be for users to search for relevant for relevant arguments and templates pertinent to their current situation or their scenario. I dig out these previous use cases and these previous analyses, find the most appropriate templates, enter them in, and identify points missing gaps in knowledge. And essentially, once they finish their product, push it back into the knowledge base where it can be reused again or, or revisited or evaluated later on. So next slide, slide 11, please. So the advantages of the corporate memory obviously are that, especially in the, when it's templated, are that a, a lot of the expertise that you have in your organization, especially analytical expertise for addressing specific issues, a, it can be stored and used by more junior analysts. So it may represent a way of essentially knowledge transfer, knowledge sharing without requiring the person to, to be explicitly present. Um, it also allows you to perform, to search over 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 the past analyses to essentially give you an idea of how how well certain methods have been, have been used for addressing certain problems and what lines of reasoning were used for arriving at certain decisions. Now the other the other thing that we found with C was that it allows different collaborations allows for different collaboration strategies. So the most obvious one would be you can take a template, again, which is a series of questions, and you break it apart across your team. So you can task your team with answering each, with, with, the, with answering each of the different questions, either based on their, based on their, uh, specialized knowledge or the capabilities. On the other hand, we've also found that can, another, another use case for collaboration would be to allow each analyst to essentially try to use the same template to answer to form an analysis on their own independently, and then because they're templated, you can combine them together to arrive at a consensus view. Um, so next slide, please, slide 12. So one example where we've used this was in assessing new hires, uh, new hire for for job interviews. So instead of instead of having everyone sit around a table at the end of the day and basically figure, trying to figure out whether or not a person we interviewed would be 
a good job candidate, what we did was we used C's. We uh, created a template that assessed the candidate a lot across certain criteria. I'm not sure if you can see it here, but essentially, you know, sort of technical abilities, you know, whether they're a good fit, their business, their ability to bring a new business, whether we really just like them or not, or whether we could work with them. So essentially what we had is we had each person, each of the uh, assessors, fill in their belief about how well or poorly this person would fit on that criteria along with their explanations. And then by joining these, each of these different assessments together, we can see A, where everyone essentially agreed, and B, where everyone disagreed. So in the case of the new job hire candidate here, if the all, most of the factors are actually were all actually we all agree on those factors pretty well. So, but there was a disagreement on uh, I think a certain a certain aspect. I think of the uh, technical aspect, and so this this disagreement was highlighted pretty well inside the joint up assessment, and we were able to identify the outlier in in that assessment and then query that person who later turned out had actually attended graduate school with the candidate. And from that, we were able to uh, sort that out pretty well. And like that candidate actually worked out pretty good, too. So we're happy with that. So next slide, please. Slide 13. And indeed, uh, observing at client sites, we found that these the, the uh, users indeed have followed sort of a have followed a usage a pattern of usage development that's using C's for their work. Um, essentially, when they first start out, they just use C's as a way to kind of as a checklist to help help them organize and just visualize what they're doing. And then eventually they realize that they actually do have collaborative facilities in the C's, and they start actually start applying some of the strategies that are outlined over there to try to better better, better perform their analyses. And finally, they once they've got a, a set of models out there in the repository, they can, oh, pardon me, they can essentially re-leverage their previous ex expertise and, <coughs> oh, sorry about that, and go back and revisit that. So, sorry, slide 14, please. <coughs> We've also found that even though C is actually, the marketed C is essentially as an analytical tool, Users, users have actually been. Oh, sorry. Users have actually used these in a sort of a non-analytical context. Essentially, they use these to like track execution and monitoring, essentially, for tra tracking progress of projects. So, well, in one use case, at least at SRI, we've used these to track the internal progress of uh, different projects as they go. So I think every month um, the project manager would fill out a CDs template and describe the current project health of uh, the current status of the project. So now over a period of time, you can identify trends and potential potential problem areas and address them <coughs> as you go. And and uh, <coughs> sorry. And also in the other case, we've actually seen C's users use the structure in C's to actually implement a workflow or help organize a workflow. And in that case, we also use the answering mechanism there to also you know, track the status and progress of their products as they go through. 
So next slide, please. So one of the issues I didn't really address here was how are these templates constructed? So um, obviously there are a lot of really good ideas and the other speakers have presented that we will present, and that's something that we'll be hopefully we'll discuss. But the other thing is that we've also got on current ongoing work in the project named Angler for that leverages brainstorming and clustering ideas to generate these templates from up in a, in a collaborative way. So finally, uh, next slide, please, <clears throat> before my voice gives out, sorry. And finally, yep, essentially, we found that structured argumentation techniques have been really good in fostering communication and also independence of ideas and in storing uh, previous analyses and comparing analyses across time. And with the development of a corporate memory, it will also, it also allows, allows for reuse of previous, of uh, reuse and knowledge transfer of previous analytical techniques. Alright, and I should probably, I should probably end out before my voice gives out completely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric. I was sorry to hear that you know, you've come down with something. Uh, hope you recover soon. Oh, Thank you. Okay. Uh, so next, uh, we have uh, Jack Park, also from SRI International, uh, who will be speaking to us on federating hypermedia discourse uh, for sense-making. And Jack uh, has been an Ontolog member since the very beginning, and uh, he as a lot of us know, uh, is a staunch supporter of uh, uh, Doug Engelbart and his bootstrap uh, ideas. And uh, Jack is the co-author and editor of uh, XML Topic Maps, uh, creating and using topic maps for the, for the web. So uh, let's try to bring up Jack's slides. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Good. Good. All right. Uh, let's bring up your slides first. The nice thing about giving the talk last is that all of the other authors took all of the thunder out of what I have to say, so I can just coast through and touch on a few key points that are important to me and try and relate them uh, back to the the talks before. Um, if you could switch to a uh, two. Okay, Jack, could you speak up a little bit, please? Also. All right. Uh, how are we doing now? Uh, slightly better. Go on. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I just mentioned, in case it didn't come through, that, that it was nice to have all of the other speakers take most all of the thunder out of what I have to say, and that um, I can coast through and touch on a few high points uh, that I think are, are of, of, of great interest. Um, I, I'm using the term knowledge gardening, and I'll tell you that it's actually a corruption of Douglas Engelbart's dynamic knowledge repository, um, I like the idea of um, dynamic knowledge repositories, but I think that uh, knowledge gardening uh, is is a word that that uh, 
it, it seems to take root uh, easier than the concept or the metaphor of repository because people are actively um, engaged in manipulating the uh, knowledge assets that are, are contained in the repository. Uh, so that's where we're going. And, and then essentially, um, the processes associated with hypermedia discourse um, are the processes of, of uh, knowledge gardening in, in my parlance. Uh, can we go to the next slide, uh, slide three? Um, so it's a brief outline we're going to talk. I'm going to do a little bit of defining what knowledge gardening is in my sense, and then I'm going to talk about uh, the four primary uh, activities that, that are involved. I should tell you that I'm writing a thesis. Uh, Simon is my thesis advisor, the chair of my committee, and um, my, my thesis is, is titled Hypermedia Discourse Federation. In one of Simon's uh, bullet points, he mentioned that they would like to connect um, uh, uh, heterogeneous information resources. Um, I'm using, rather than the word connect, I'm using the word federate, and I'll, I'll talk about that shortly. We'll talk about some of the architectures and related tools. Next uh, slide four, please. So... In, in the largest sense, I tend to think of knowledge gardening as uh, collaborative problem-solving in rugged uh, fitness landscapes. I use the word fitness uh, because there is an evolutionary process going on. Some might refer to it as evolutionary epistemology. We're learning how to learn, we're learning how to know, and we're also learning what. Um, so fitness landscape comes in uh, through the, the objective that if you're climbing um, uh, a steep slope, as you see the the, um, the climber here, you don't actually know whether you've reached the plateau unless it's a clear and absolute plateau. And in many problems that have to be solved, it's a one, uh, thought that you occasionally land on a false plateau, think you've solved the problem. And so mathematicians and scientists have spent a lot of time trying to find ways to jiggle you off of the local plateau and try and find and continue the search looking for um, a better solution. Uh, it's well known that if you're in a really rugged landscape and you fall off the side, you're going to fall a long ways down. If you're in a rather calm uh, uh, terrain where it's gentle slopes, uh, step a few feet away and you haven't moved very much. Um, so those metaphors are deeply ensconced in, in a lot of what I'm going to talk about. Uh, next slide, please. Um, this is Simon's slide from another talk, and it speaks really to the gardening metaphor. Um, many of the claims people make are rather um, are not well documented. They're not really truthful. They may be uh, they may be based on ignorance or false information, or not well expressed. In any case, uh, think of those as the wild weeds around the edge, but it may turn out that some of those weeds turn out, uh, in, in the end, are, are extremely valuable, and the idea is to migrate them into the ordered part of the, of the garden. Uh, next slide, please. This will be slide six. Uh, so from this perspective, uh, knowledge gardening, and, and this comes from Engelbart, which I think the next slide will show, knowledge gardening is both people and tools. Um, 
And so what I what I, I use this image of uh, two insects um, communicating uh, through their antenna. The the the, the, the major the major uh, view that I put the wash I put over the top of knowledge gardening is conversation, and conversation as as we know um, is a very deep subject. I won't go very deep into it here, but it's it's clearly. Uh, how we conduct conversation it can be Bohmian, where we sit around and we talk to each other, learn to trust each other, and then move into the content. And it can also be a like Gordon past conversation theory, where I have a model of what you think, you building a model based on what I'm thinking and I'm conversing with you. And it's a transfer of information uh, between our two models as we converse. Uh, next slide, please. Seven. This is Engelbart. Uh, Engelbart says that a DKR is people plus tools, and, and I really need to emphasize that point. Just because I make a topic map or somebody makes compendium or cohere, that's part of the pro that is part, but not the whole of, of knowledge gardening. Next slide, please. So I, what I would like to say is that my game is that of federation. And federation to me means dictionary definition, which is the bringing together. And in this case, what we are interested in doing is bringing together information resources. And federation, in my sense, is something called subject-centric. It represents the move away from document-centric thinking where I am talking about the New York Times or this book or that or that technical report, and I'm much more interested in the subjects contained within those documents. That's the focus of attention. And if, if I say that, then what I get to tell you is that I think in terms of the index of the back of a book, which is subject-centric uh, but weak because it will point to the occurrences of the keywords that it's indexing into that book, but not to books elsewhere or to websites or other things. So we imagine the equivalent of the index of the back of a book, but we imagine it on the web because it's not indexing any particular book. It's indexing every information resource it can get access to. Uh, next slide. Uh, this would be uh, slide nine. Uh, when I say subject-centric curation, I am actually saying co-locating representations of the same subject together. And I do this through a process called topic mapping. And the idea here is, is that in a topic map, which is just like a road map, it has representations of some territory. In our case, the representations are collections of containers which hold links to all of the information resources that are about that subject. Now, we know that in the index of the back of a book, you can have a relationship like see also. In a topic map on the web... The moderator has disconnected. The moderator's disconnected. Can I still be heard? I'm going to assume I'm still being heard. Uh, yes, I can hear you. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I got a strange message from, from uh, the telephone machine. Um, and I think Peter dropped off. So just keep going. You're doing great. Oh, thanks. Uh, 
Where was I? Oh, yes. Map is not the territory. We are making a map of a territory, and the territory is information resources, and those information resources are not documents. They are about subjects. Some of those documents, those resources found on the web, might actually be about many different subjects. So we have to be able to find and mine those subjects in there. Now, you've got an example of that going on in Jeff's talk where he took a document and pulled out of it uh, elements and turned them into a dialogue map. That's exactly what I'm talking about. As I said, the, the talk, speakers before me took almost all of the thunder out of what I had to say, but I get to see it again my way. And here we go. In a index of the back of a book, you can say, see it also. On a topic map on the web, I can actually forge the relationships that exist between the subjects. I can represent the relationships and the roles being played by the, by the actors in the relationships. The point is, is that we are building a well-organized collective memory. And my thesis is about federating the work product of, of compendium, of cohere, and of the equivalent of, of delicious, the tagging social bookmarking site, because social bookmarks tags play an enormous role in collective sense-making. Um, next slide, uh, 10, I believe it is. Uh, so this is the view of a topic map, uh, 30th C of Steve Pepper in his, in his very famous paper, The Tao of Topic Maps. Uh, you have a sea of information resources, and then you have subjects above them, and then you have relationships between those subjects. Um, so this, this is where you could, you could read that and, and come to the conclusion just reading the map you could say an awful lot about Puccini, about Tosca, um, uh, and about um, cities in Italy and so forth. It's all in the map itself. You don't have to go to the resources to pick up all of the key points. Next slide, please. The map itself turns out to be a collective memory, a belief space um, that is created by a population of information creators. That's us, and we're doing it as we speak. Next slide, please. So the activities involved that I'm going to talk about are annotation by tagging. This is uh, delicious. I have my own version called Tagamizer. Um, Tagamizer was built for SRI's Kalo project, the idea being that Kalo is a semantic desktop workstation that allows you to organize everything that is knowable about projects you're engaged with. And so you can use those project names as tag strings and go out on the web and tag objects that you think are related or appropriate to uh, given projects. And then Kalo can go to Tagamizer and say, what do we know about this project? And so this is a way of helping to organize, and it's done collectively. Anybody in the, in the plant that's working on the project or in the group that's working on the project can participate in the tagging. Um, so that's a triad of information. The pivot is the bookmark itself. It's not illustrated. But if you put your thumb on the bookmark in the middle of the, the three nodes there, you can pivot around the resources, the tags, and the users associated with that bookmark. Next slide, please. Um, this is essentially my rendition of what Cohere was about. I got my ideas originally from Cohere's roots which are known as the Scolanto Project, well-documented on the web. 
the idea is that I had created a uh, website, actually SRI created a website called um, openiris.org where we are making available the semantic desktop part of Kalo as an open source project. And I found that there is a semantic desktop subject in or topic in Wikipedia. So I would like to forge a tag that says, I would, I would like to forge a relationship between the Wikipedia article about semantic desktops with the semantic desktop concept, which is what Open Iris is. So I would use Cohere to forge that relationship. Next, next slide. And of course, there's conversation. Jeff and 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 uh, Adam, I'm sorry, uh, Jeff and Simon. Whoops, uh, spoke about that. As did Eric. Um, okay, so I don't need to spend any more time on that. But please go to slide 15, and I'll expand on what Jeff said this morning. Um, if you if you recall, Jeff spoke about taking a linear document and turning it into uh, a structured. Um, conversation uh, a dialogue map, and so I went to the New York Times uh, op-ed column where um, Paul Krugman did a, an article called Brains Gone Wild. You can Google that and pull up the article. And I proceeded to turn it into a, um, an issue map of my own craft using a compendium. The, he spoke about food riots, and then he asked one question, how did this happen? And then he gave three answers. There were long-term trends, there was bad luck, and there was bad policy. And so that gave me the uh, immediate structure of this. And then I went on and put my interpretations of what he was saying into this map. Now, any of you could go and do the same thing. Download Compendium and make your own issue map. And chances are you'll get the left part the same as I did because it was given to you. You may or may not interpret the rest of his words the way I did. And I think that this is a wonderful aspect of collective sense-making um, that allows us to each put up our interpretations in a dialogue map and then go from there um, to 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 discuss in a further dialogue map how we disagree and agree with each other. Now, here's the gist of what my thesis says. My thesis suggests that each one of these nodes in this issue map is itself a subject as if it was a subject in a large topic map on the web. The idea is that I wish to federate every one of these nodes in every possible dialogue map with the subjects about which each node is based. This allows us a larger picture. My friend Tom Munnick talks about something called zoom sticks. This is like the dial on a microscope where you can zoom in closer or zoom out. A zoom stick would take you out 50,000 feet or go all the way down to the molecules themselves, which should remind you of the Eames Brothers uh, Powers of Ten uh, book and film. Um, the idea is I would like to be able to make representations in the topic map that would allow you to have the equivalent of a zoom stick. So you could go, you could take any one of these nodes in this issue map and back up and ask, what is the larger picture? So let me explain just in words what I mean by the larger picture. What we know in that particular um, in that particular discussion by Paul Krugman was he was talking about what he called 
Chinese mediators or mediating Chinese people as part of his long-term trend. Now, what he was really saying in my interpretation was that people in, in um, what are so-called developing nations um, are beginning to get richer, and as they become more wealthy, they start picking up eating habits that raise them higher on the food chain, which causes a higher carbon footprint, which contributes to the climate issues, and so on and so forth. So we just noticed that there are there are the feedstocks of the um, for the beef, and the feedstocks are 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 grains. The grains are also, as he says, being used now to make biofuels. So there is a necessary competition that he's identifying between the feedstocks, and that causes the food rights because the cost of food went up. Associated with that are the concepts of water, climate, energy, and land. And if we go beyond that, there are further subjects involved, like coal, coal burning, greenhouse gas, CO2, atmosphere, uh, global warming, water, land, animal feed, cereal grains, and cattle. Those are just a few of the subjects that actually surround that map that I made. And my my project is to federate all of those and make them available so that when you zoom out of the conversation that that map represents, you can go out to the 50,000-foot foot, 50, level, helicopter around, and come back down in some other space and look what everything else meant. That's pretty much the gist of what I'm talking about here. Uh, can we have the next slide, please? This is all done in a social setting. And social setting means that you're going to have relationships with other people. You're going to cut author papers. You're going to be talking at the same conferences. You're going to be discussing the same subjects. And that turns out to be an important aspect of it, is the relationships among the individuals. And the reason for that is there has to be something that helps deal with the input of having an enormous map it tries to represent everything that was ever said by everybody on the planet. That is not a realistic idea. We need to have what we call collective or collaborative filtering going on where people rate, people know, people learn to trust what is said by this or that individual. Using that, we can set up filters that allow us to suppress views of information that we think is less trustworthy. Next slide, please. So I'm giving an example of a knowledge garden uh, for schools where, there, uh, where the knowledge garden is actually maintained by official kinds of people like school teachers and principals and so forth, but it's maintained one of the, one of the tenets of federation in my view is, is that nothing is censored. Now, obviously, there's going to be certain kinds of rules placed on school, school disinformation, but on the other hand, in general, if um, two students come in and one says uh, A is really an X and another one says no, it's a B, um, then whoever's right or wrong, they still get to be, they still get to make their, their message in, uh, and it's represented in the map. If they later correct their message, then that's represented in the map. That is to say, there is no authoritarian censoring of information based on whether you agree or disagree with something. Federation wants to give everybody all of the world views. This is sort of like if you go to your doctor and you are diagnosed with disease X, you would really like to have a second opinion, so you're going to go look at somebody else's ontology 
if you go into a knowledge garden, you would get all possible diagnoses or explanations of the diagnosis. And this is to allow you a better opportunity to evaluate your own situation. Uh, next slide, please. So there is an architecture for knowledge gardening that, that's based on the topic map. I'm calling it a subject map in this, in this uh, slide. Uh, it's the universe of information resources. Uh, the map sits on top of it, and then there are these contextual view portals. These are portals that really give you the view based on the context. For example, there would be a contextual view portal on cancer. There might be one on global warming and so forth. There are also collaboration portals or tools associated with all of the portals. And then there are personal workspaces where you can assemble your own worldviews and maintain them either privately or publicly. That's the big picture of the architecture that, that I'm, I'm thinking about. Uh, next slide, please. Um, there is a related tool. I mentioned it earlier. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the plan for my employer. We did uh, uh, Kalo as a big project. It's, in its, it's in, in its last year now. We were able to release the semantic desktop part, portion of it, complete with all of the artificial intelligence tools needed for harvesting information uh, and assembling it. And all of that is uh, open source uh, on, on the web at that URL. Next slide, please. There is going to be related tools in the form of Second Life. Uh, I have a strong vision of, of, of modifying the Second Life uh, client so that it can query not only the Second Life server, but it can query the topic map according to wherever it is you are in um, Second Life. That's just a vision right now. I'd like to think it would become reality one of these days soon. Next slide, please. Miss 21, yes. And this is a screenshot of the front page of um, Topic Spaces, the open source prototype um, uh, topic map engine that I am developing in both for Kalo and for my thesis project. Um, it is online. It's on a very weak DSL uh, that exists in my, in, um, in, in my living room at my home. And so I don't put its URL on the web, but if anybody writes to me, I can give you the URL, and I can even give you a, a, a way to log in and create an account and play. It's very slow and very rough, but it does work. Um, that's pretty much what I wanted to say, Peter. Well, thank you very much, Jack. Wonderful talk. And uh, we, our, all our panelists have given us a roundup of that landscape uh, we call hypermedia discourse. So uh, since we are pressed for time, so let's say we have uh, time for just maybe a couple of questions. Uh, uh, again, I repeat, uh, you can either uh, click on the uh, hand button on the chat board or press 1-1 one, one on your keypad, phone keypad, and uh, let's try to see if uh, there are immediate comments. Uh, otherwise, you're all welcome to uh, send your questions to the Ontolog Forum, as uh, all our panelists are uh, listed, uh, subscribed to the list, uh, and we can, we can uh, get them to answer that way. Uh, 
Maybe I I have one uh, question for the entire panel. Uh, I, I, okay, I have one question. Let, let me field this one first. Uh, from person who called in maybe 40 minutes ago with the number that says 408. Go ahead. Did I come through? Um, yes. I had to take it off the Yes, we can hear you now. This is Tony Christopher. Jack, I was wondering if you could say a little more about what the uh, topic spaces prototype is or how it works on your, that you're running. Question for Jack. Yeah, I, I was busy unmuting so I could talk, and I didn't catch the, the trailing edge of his, his uh, question. Hi, Tony. Just, hi, just wanted to understand a little bit more about what the tool, what, how, what, about what, what, you're, what you're building. You just take it take it to another level. Sure. Uh, okay. So there's a there's a core what I call a core uh, subject map provider. That is an engine that consists of the database backside and a set of API provides a set of APIs for creating and manipulating what I call subject maps. And so I should explain. Uh, subject map is a topic map built to a higher, a different standard than the XML topic maps. It's true. I created the XML topic maps book in 2002 and shortly thereafter divorced myself from the XML standard because, uh, the newer topic maps reference model, which is still part of the same ISO 13250 standard, allows me a little more freedom to express um, the contents of the subject proxy in ways that I think are much closer to the way I learned how to do them when I did artificial intelligence. It's a, basically a frame-based representation, kind of like OWL, kind of like any of the other AI programs you might be familiar with. So there's a core system that provides the topic map services, and it will provide web services as well. And then there is wrapped around that a number of applications like Tagamizer and a person application and a cancer portal and so on and so forth. It's all written in Java, and when I decide to release the, the source code, it will be it will be open source. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay. Maybe uh, uh, essentially since. Uh, there is several presentation, except for uh, I guess uh, Jeff's and Simon's, that are uh, 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 essentially coming from the same root. Uh, the implementation, for example, at C's, uh, is sort of independent work that is independently done, but uh, towards the same goals. So uh, maybe this is, would be a question for uh, uh, Simon and Eric. Is if the, the Jeff's uh, taxonomy or, or ontology is created into a template in C, I mean, would you have almost exactly the same tool in 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 the in the analysis? Um, this is Eric, and I guess I can I can address that. I'm yeah, I think you can probably you can probably for, you can probably. Uh, construct a template so that it approximates some of the same behavior. Now, obviously, you have to try it out to get all the, uh, get all the entailments figured out. But I think, I mean, the thing is, I mean, all these, I mean, these tools are all kind of dancing around the same concept, and, yeah, I'd say it'd be doable. Okay. Uh, maybe Simon uh, or Jeff, you have anything to add to that? 
Um, <clears throat> I suppose one way of thinking about it is if you uh, in C is you create a template, a hierarchical tree of questions which are very, as I understand it, quite they have quite a carefully worked out relationship with each other. It's a hierarchical tree which gets increasingly refined as you move down towards the leaves so that you can propagate the ratings and, you know, the red through green scale up through the visualization. So if you have a well-defined area that you which you can decompose into an issue tree, then um, C's, C's is clearly going to be more powerful um, in the sense of, you know, you have weightings on, on your responses and it generates these visualizations dynamically. Um, if you're dealing with um, <coughs> an area where it's not even clear what the key issues are that the different stakeholders are bringing, um, then you're in the space of dialogue mapping, which is the kind of skill that Jeff was talking about. Um, and um, if you have, as I said, if you have a methodology which just says you should be exploring this part of the space at this point and asking these kinds of questions, then you could you could do the, the more formal version of dialogue mapping, which we call conversational modeling, where you're driving your questions and possibly the space of answers you consider from a particular method or uh, analytical process. That's one way of thinking about it. It's in terms of how clear are the important questions uh, right now? It might be you want to do some dialogue mapping and modeling of the space before you get to the point that you feel you understand it well enough to then create your issue tree a la C's. Um, that's one way of thinking about it. If This is Thank Jeff. If I may um, jump on with just yeah, one yeah. additional thought about this. Um, I think Simon's exactly right that we're sort of trying to frame this. We're working in a spectrum of formality, and it's everywhere from, you know, the compendium dialogue mapping style, just uh, virtually anything goes. You can put anything up in a node, and um, there are rules, but it's, a very, it's, it's intentionally a fairly loose, very, very flexible structure to... Um, to the, and, and exploring ways that you could formalize that and automate it and be able to do interesting computational things over those networks. Um, the thing that I am always in, um, impressed with as I work with clients and groups um, is that it, it keeps reinforcing my sense that communication between human beings is a bit of a miracle when it happens. Um, it's something that we tend to take for granted, and it's easy to imagine that um, it works well most of the time, but um, when, you, when you're working with problems that are very complex and the stakes are high, it's actually incredibly easy for meaning to be fragmented um, and for two different stakeholders to be talking to each other, seeming to be having a conversation, but actually quite profoundly missing the point of what each other is saying. And the goal of dialogue mapping and some of these other um, kind of intervention approaches is to slow the process down and try to um, focus on <laughs> what is the question being addressed. And so it's, it's really very different from what's, um, as Simon said, pointed out, what's kind of happening with something as you move down the formalization scale towards something that's, that's more computable, but therefore also much more stable. 
Well, well said, uh, Jeff. Maybe one one last uh, question. I mean, it, in in terms of modeling uh, the 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 uh, the taxonomy. I mean, I remember way back when, probably maybe thirty year back. I mean, I was starting out. I mean, with probably uh, again a, a sort of uh, parallel effort. I mean, from uh, work by maybe the the uh, speech act people and implementation maybe by people like uh, Fernando Flores, uh, Terry Winograd, and, and so on. Uh, how does that uh, sort of map into the the, the kind of uh, implementations that that uh, you guys are doing now, maybe particularly Simon, since you are implementing the tools. Okay, so um, speech act. Um, the the work that Winograd and Flores did <coughs> was was controversial in one sense because what they did was they created a kind of groupware system where um, some quite subtle social gestures uh, were formalized in the system and then the system would kind of nag you if you didn't keep to your social contract um, <clears throat> so whereas before you might drop somebody an email which had an implicit offer of help and you can express that in many ways now in this system they called the coordinator which is just one prototype you know you explicitly said I am making you an offer of help for example and it and it attracted a lot of criticism from people concerned with the you know the richness of human discourse, saying, well, this is just a step too far. We don't want our systems uh, intruding this much in the way we we communicate. Um, that's just one rendering of the whole speech act approach. Um, the speech act approach essentially says, and you know, Mark Arcus, who's on the on this call, may. Is, is far better qualified to talk about this than I am. But it says that we do things with words. And the question is, what is the relationship between that insight and how we build our systems? Um, you know, the coordinator was one particular, particular take on that, but ours is a slightly different take on that, where we're less concerned with people making social gestures or forming contracts with each other than where they're trying to make meaning out of a, a problem that's poorly understood. And we don't try to capture social interaction uh, and, and, and commitments in quite the same way as, as that early work by Winograd and Flores. Uh, you've seen some of the languages that we're, that we're using, um, and they are by no means the final word either, but they are the kinds of languages that um, capture the critical kinds of moves we see in meetings, um, the IBIS language or the critical kinds of moves we see in knowledge-intensive communities who are trying together to move forward and gain insight into a problem. Um, that's the kind of work on Scolonto and Cohere. So that's, that's one response. Um, I don't know whether Mark wants to say anything further on that front, because this is very much your territory. Thank you very much for sharing the insight, Simon. Mark, are, are you uh, still online? If you are, uh, could you press star three and uh, maybe share with us your view? Star three. Hello. Yes, we can hear oh, you. Oh, good. I'm uh, up. Yes. Yeah. You you, you I'll, need I'll, to speak up a little bit. Though. Okay. 
Well, I won't say too much more. I thought Simon did a really nice job with that. And in, in all of these systems that we saw today, we, we see some sort of attempt to capture communicative acts right, through kinds of moves. And what's really important is the, the, it's about these relationships of moves, questions to answers, and, and then working with different ways of setting up those relationships. And so so I, I see a lot of speech act or communicative act stuff in the background, but it sort of avoided a lot of the problems that uh, uh, that coordinator had with, you know, a real heavy sort of explication of a social contract. <coughs> the question, I suppose, is uh, to me, and this is ultimately where this goes, is in these is the reconstructions performed. Uh, that is, uh, in any map, you're you're pulling out some aspects of the social context and leaving others hidden, and uh, and the trick is, right, is to try to sort out which kinds of speech acts or communicative acts or moves, right, are going to be most useful for uh, articulating this sort of argumentative context that you want to have. Uh, uh, but you know, each of these uh, systems does a, a different kind of nice job at dealing with that. That's, I'll just leave it at that for now. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for sharing. The Can I just jump in, Peter, and say, I mean, that your question is, you know, very much putting your finger on an important issue, which uh, the pragmatic web community, at least part of it, is is quite focused on. So the, the whole pragmatic web effort is. Is, is saying, well, it's great that we've got formal semantics that machines can read o reason over, but if we're going to take pragmatics seriously, context and the negotiation of meaning in response to what others are saying and the changing environment, what does it mean to bring pragmatics into our computational systems? And um, your question was very much around in that sphere of activity as well. Thank you, Sam. Absolutely. Okay, we've got two more hands up. I guess we could only maybe take one short question from each of them. Uh, person, person from 908 uh, who has his hands up, if you, uh, area code 908, if you do Hi, it, Dark uh, 3, uh, please go ahead. Right, Peter, this is Pat Cassidy. Okay. Uh, just a question to any one of the um, participants. Uh, is there a formal ontology of the relationships among these various <coughs> Um, elements of discourse or reasoning or problem solving that you, you have available for, for reuse by others? Um, I'm particularly <coughs> interested in, in, the, in the, you know, uh, well-defined well descriptions of what the relationships are supposed to mean so that different people will use them in the same way. Well, um, depends what you mean by a formal ontology. Um, there are there are formal there are descriptions of them in articles. Um, IBIS has been rendered as um, uh, an RDF scheme. Um, the uh, ontology for scholarly literature analysis exists in um, RDF scheme and OWL. So um, I guess the answer is yes, um, but the answer is also no because. I can't guarantee that people are going to use those in a particular way. Um, so, but that's well, no, any, any ontology. 
No, 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 there's no guarantee, but but um, the question is whether there's enough information in the description to uh, to be to make them unam relatively unambiguous, so that people, if they were to follow that description, would use them in the same way. Of course, people can be perverse and just ignore the descriptions. Uh, that, that's, so, so, uh, so there, are there pointers on, on these in these slides? It wasn't wasn't clear that uh, in, in looking through the slides whether. Um, there are pointers to these uh, where they can be downloaded. And, and well, the, um, again, um, the description of how to use a particular ontology, in my view, actually, is, is better done in natural language and by example than by uh, just within the, within the scheme, unless the scheme is enforcing particular constraints that say you can only link an X to a Y by the following five relationships. Um, but um, the the, um, the IBIS scheme is is very well documented, and and people don't normally have great difficulty understanding how to use it in principle. What they have difficulty with, and this is the literacy thing, is it's just learning how to chunk their ideas up, and uh, you know not bundle uh, a new issue and three possible solutions and some arguments all in one utterance because that's how we speak. But as Jeff was trying to say, there is value in slowing down and and uh, deconstructing those moves and that's about learning how to use the ontology well even if in principle you think you understand it and this is Jeff if I may just piggyback on that um, as, a, as a, a a very common example um, the, the definition of what, a, what an, an answer is supposed to be as a, as a response to a question but there's this subtle uh, issue about relevance and someone can put something there and say, well, it responds to the question. And others can say, well, but not very well. It's not, it's not a precise response to the question as it's framed, or it's not at the same level of description as the other answers that have been offered. So there's a fair amount of, of, um, of a kind of more artistic or stylistic um, distinction that has to be made to make sure that the that IBIS maps um, and robust in a way. There's often a time when you've got something that's an answer to a question. It's really time to frame a new question that that's more precisely the answer to and move it over to that. And this is kind of the difference between a semantic and a pragmatic perspective, perhaps. It's kind of an orientation, I think. Um, most of us are particularly interested in, in meaning-making in a particular context. So even if something formally is a legitimate move, it may just be you know, very, very, of very little value in the context, um, almost inappropriate, and, and pretty much only humans are going to be able to make that kind of judgment call. On the other hand, this may sound quite fuzzy wuzzy, and you know, don't these guys want to make a commitment to anything to to allow computation? <laughs> and another, we are on the borders of argumentation theory and computational modeling of argument. That's another universe that I sit on the edge of and they are pushing harder on modeling argumentation structures much more formally and so you can go in that direction if you want to but you know the trade-off is you have to understand things much more rigorously and um, doesn't doesn't match many of the the, the real sense-making situations that we face but that can be done as well in IBIS and other re representation schemes Yes. Okay. The question I'd have too is, in addition to the book about dialogue mapping, what other documents would you recommend for someone who did want to learn more about the topic? I mean, in, in detail, particularly again, 
about the relationships that you feel are relevant? Um, there is a book all about um, computation and argumentation, edited by Chris Reed and Dundee. Um, I can add that link to to, uh, to my uh, my bio on the Ontolog website. Um, there's a, a conference called Comma Computational Modeling of Argumentation um, in Toulouse, the second international conference coming up in uh, next month. Um, and then we've written. There's also a whole area called coherence relations theory, which is um, looking at upper-level ontologies to do with relationships, rather than upper-level ontologies to do with you know classes like time and people and objects, etc., like site. So there is a whole discourse ontology world as well. I, I, I didn't follow the latter. What's the difference between an upper ontology to do with relationships? And then a ontology like Psych that includes relationships, not a bit clear. Well, um, Psych's ontology relationships is quite primitive. Um, um, the discourse people, like natural language generation people, have uh, been working quite hard on trying to refine ontologies to do with what what makes coherent relationships between um, between entities or elements in a text or in other media, in fact, as well. Um, so it's a different. I mean, ontology specifically for text structure. Yeah, and text coherence. So it's related to work on rhetorical structure theory, but it goes much further than rhetorical structure theory did because that had no bounds on the number of relations you might invent. So may, may I take the opportunity to maybe encourage people to continue this discussion uh, on the mailing list. Uh, there's an OKMES convene list, uh, which would be the right platform for this. Uh, sure. So I'll post some things there. Yeah, one last chance for this uh, Lumberchu person, uh, L-U-M-B-E-R-C-H-U. Uh, could you uh, mm -hmm. it, it, try to say something, see if we can hear you? Maybe your own phone is on mute, so try to look at your phone, too. Hi, this is uh, Eric again. All right. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I, had, I didn't read it. So I was wondering, uh, in the course of forming these maps over groups, if uh, groupthink or issues with groupthink or biases have shown up and how you've addressed that. Who, who would you like to speak to this? Um, I guess probably, probably Jeff, since you know, you've worked directly with uh, groups forming dialogue maps. Hi, Eric. Yeah, uh, I I think it's um, I'm not sure that there's a that there's a crisp um, answer about this. There, groupthink is a tendency for groups to um, go along with um, kind of fundamental unexamined assumptions in their process. And um, any kind of intervention that has a group slow down and reflect on their conversation um, tends to support uh, a little bit more rigor in terms of at least being clear about what are the assumptions in which we're working. And that's a, that is a natural part of the dialogue mapping process. Um, but obviously, uh, none of this prevents a group from, you know, uh, falling into uh, either culturally or socially or um, 
all kinds of, of blind areas where, um, you know, there's only one thinking inside the nine dots, as it were. Oh, great. I guess we better wrap up. Uh, let's see if Jean is still with us. Jean? Oh, if not, uh, I would, on behalf of the organizers, uh, thank our panel and everyone who has participated. I mean, this has been a really wonderful session. Uh, it's being recorded. Uh, telephone playback will be available within sec uh, within minutes, so check out the uh, session page again, and then the uh, MP3 download and podcast should be ready in a day. Thank you very much, everyone, and have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thanks, Thanks Peter. Peter. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.